Hey, I just want to honor Pastor Rex, who brings it every weekend, huh? An incredible series he just finished, week in and week out. One of the best, for sure. I was talking to some high school friends recently that I haven't spoken to in a while, and we were recalling stories from the past, which can be kind of fun. And one story stood up. It's when my one friend, Frank, made a promise to my other friend, John. You see, Frank was big, strong, very athletic, played a lot of sports, popular in school. John was a bit of the opposite. He was real smart, but not athletic at all, didn't play any sports, and he was small in stature. And there was this one kid in school who was a bit of a troublemaker, unfortunately. He liked to pick fights. His name was Steve. And for whatever reason, John was his target. And on occasion, he would tease John. When Frank heard about it, he went up to John and said, John, you got to stand up for yourself. And then he gave him some advice. He said, go up to Steve and tell him to meet you after school, four o'clock today in the school parking lot, and I'll be there with you. I'll meet you there. And he won't bother you ever again. John looked at Frank and said, you sure you're going to be there? Frank looked at John and said, I promise. I will be there. So John took his advice. At four o'clock as he's approaching the school parking lot, he sees Steve waiting for him. But do you know who he does not see? Frank. He's, he's nowhere to be found. You know why? Because he fell asleep on the couch and he missed his four o'clock appointment. And how should I put this? Things did not work out so well for, for John. He said, I ran for my life. He said, I surprised myself how fast I ran. Steve never did catch it. Broken promises. I think we've all experienced them a time or two, and it can leave us doubting the words of some people. You know what I mean? But I'm here to remind us that God is not only a promise maker, and he is, but he's also a promise keeper. And we can count on his word. But you know, sometimes we can even doubt the word of God. And if we're not careful, we can miss his best for our lives. And what I want to do today is look at an Old Testament story found in the Old Testament, a book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, that I believe is rich with lessons that we can apply in our lives today. So let me give a little context. God here is leading his people, the Israelites, to the land he promised to Abraham over 600 years prior to this pivotal moment. Now, you may remember the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years before God called Moses to lead them out of Egyptian bondage into the promised land. And now, after the Israelites had witnessed the hand of God in their midst, after they witnessed and saw with their own eyes the 10 plagues that culminated in the parting of the Red Sea, after they saw food falling from the sky, manna for their survival, after they saw God leading them in the desert by cloud during the day and by fire at night, they now arrive at the edge of the promised land. And God says to Moses, verse 2, chapter 13. Look at it with me. Send some men to explore the land of Canaan. Now get this next phrase, which I am giving to the Israelites. I'm giving it to you. It's yours for the taking. And so each of the tribes selected one leader, 12 tribes, 
12 leaders to go and explore the land. And they went to evaluate the land. Is it rich and fertile as God promised? They went to evaluate the people. Are they weak or strong? They went to go evaluate the cities. Do they live in tents or in fortified cities? After 40 days of exploring the land, they come back with a report. And the report is very good. They all agreed the land is incredible. It's prosperous. It's fertile. It flows with milk and honey. And they brought back evidence to prove it. Grapes, pomegranates, figs. They all agreed the land is good. But 10 of the 12, not including Caleb and Joshua, I want you to think of them as the trusting two. But 10 of the 12 said, yeah, the land is good. But there's some bad news. You see, something stood in the way of God's good promise for them. And the bad news was there's some rough folks in there. They said the ites are everywhere. The Hittites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites. And then they said, and they live in strong, fortified cities. They were full of fear. And that's when Caleb boldly interrupted them. Verse 30, look at it with me. And he boldly made this statement. We should go up and take possession of the land, the promise, for we can certainly do it. He was full of courage. Why? Because he trusted in the promises of God. But the 10 looked at him as if he had lost his mind to even make that suggestion. And I'm thinking they probably thought Caleb didn't see the giants. The giants from the descendants of Anak. And they said, compared to them, we look like grasshoppers. In fact, we feel like grasshoppers. And they said, if we just go back in that land, it will swallow us up whole. You get the point. They're terrified. And they said, we're not going to the promised land. Let's just go back to the desert. Now get this. 10 leaders... And their fear influenced the entire Israelite camp. The fear spread like wildfire. And we read in chapter 14 that all of the Israelites began to wail out loud. They were crying. They were reaping. They were thinking, we are doomed. Probably thinking that the giants are going to come and take them out. And that's when Joshua and Caleb made one final plea to try to bolster their courage and faith in God and lose all the fear that they were displaying. And look at chapter 14 here, verses seven through nine. Caleb and Joshua making their final plea. They said, and I want you to pay attention to how often they reference the Lord. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. I'm thinking that's a pretty good rallying call considering all the good God did for them up to this point. But they wouldn't have it. They said, we're not going and we would be better off living in bondage in Egypt. And their fear then turned to anger. And they were thinking of stoning Caleb and Joshua to death for making that final plea. 
And we know how the story ends. The Israelites got what they wanted and God allowed them to wander in the desert for 40 years. One year for every day they spied out the land until that unfaithful generation passed away in the desert, except for Caleb, Joshua, and anyone younger than 20 years old. They eventually were able to go into promised land, but the rest never experienced God's good promise. And I want that story to be a warning to you and to me of what not to do because God doesn't want us wandering in the wilderness. In fact, Jesus gives a parable in John chapter 10, the parable of the good shepherd. And the main point of, of that parable is Jesus looking at you and looking at me and saying, don't wander from me. Because when we do, we miss him. We miss his blessings and life doesn't work out so well. He did not want that for the Israelites. And he doesn't want it for you or for me because the heart of, of God is to see his children, listen, experience him and his good promises, promises of God. Hey, are you aware of how many promises God makes to you and me in the Bible, in his word? I mean, there are hundreds in hundreds of promises. And what I wanna do is just look at a few of them this morning as a reminder of God's good promises to you and to me. Now, the best promise of all is that God promises us hope beyond the grave in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whomever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, promise. For we are saved by grace, that's eternal life, through faith in Christ, not by works so that no one can boast, promise. And when we put our faith and trust in Christ, oh my goodness, listen to some of these promises that he makes to you and he makes to me. He promises peace that surpasses all understanding in Philippians 4, 6. He promises never to leave you or forsake you in Deuteronomy 31.6. He promises to be near the brokenhearted and save the crushed in spirit, Psalm 34.18. He promises you and I that we have nothing to fear, regardless of our circumstances. For he says, for I, the Lord your God, say, fear not. I am the one who helps you, Isaiah 41.13. Two more. He promises you and I the transforming power of the Holy Spirit who changes us from the inside out, and he promises us the abundant life. In John chapter 10, 10. I like how the apostle Peter summarizes all of God's promises to you and to me this way. Second Peter 1, 4. Look at it with me. God has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you and I may participate in the divine nature. We may become more and more like him. You see, God is a good God and his promises to you and me make that very clear. Now, here's what I think. I think there are some Christians who go through their lives and never experience God's good promise. 
They never experienced the blessings attached to those promises. And the reason is because God's promises are conditional. They're not automatic. They require something from us. Not all, because God does promise in Genesis never to flood the earth again. And that requires nothing from you or from me. That is an unconditional promise of God. And don't mix it up with God's unconditional love in Christ. It's as far as the east is to the west. But most of God's promises, hear me, are absolutely conditional. They require something from us. And we see that in the story. Sure, God promised them rich, fertile land to the Israelites, but they needed to do something. They needed to take it. They needed to see beyond the giants. They needed to trust God at his word, but because they did not, they did not experience the promise. And that can happen to you and I as well. See, we won't experience his promises. We will not experience his peace. We will not experience the transforming power of the spirit. We will not experience the full abundant life that he so desires for you and for me unless we do something. What's that something? I have no clue. Come back next week. <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's really quite simple. Trust him and have faith in God, not only in word, but in our actions. Charles Blondin was a tightrope walker famous in the 1800s. In the 1890s, he, his team strung a tightrope across Niagara Falls from the Canadian side to the U.S. side of the falls. And he left the Canadian side and he's inching his way to the U.S. side of the falls. And as he's approaching the U.S. side, he's greeted by thousands of screaming fans, over 10,000. And they're all chanting his name, Blondin, Blondin, Blondin. He arrives and he quiets the crowd. And he says, I am Blondin. Do you believe in me? Talk about an ego trip. And they all shouted, we believe, we believe, we believe. He quiets the crowd and says, I'm going back across the tightrope. But this time, I'm carrying someone on my back. Do you believe? I can do it. And they shout, we believe, we believe, we believe, he quiets the crowd, he asks the question, which one of you will be that person? Crowd went dead. But all of a sudden, one man comes out. It's Harry Colcourt. It's Blondin's business manager. He ends up getting on his back. Now, I don't know what the motive was. Maybe it was for business reasons. Maybe this, the publicity would just be so bad, somebody had to get on his back. Or maybe it's because he just seen him do it so many times. Whatever the motive, he gets on his back. And when he does, Blondin says these words to him and he documented it. And I'm gonna read what he said. Listen to this. He said, look up, Harry. You are no longer cold court. You are Blondin. Until I clear this, be a part of me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both die. I would have jumped off his back so fast. <laughs> he stayed on his back. 
Over the next three and a half hours, Blondin inches his way safely to the Canadian side of the falls with his business manager on his back. Now, the point of the story is very obvious. 10,000 screaming fans said, we believe, we believe, we believe. Only one, though, truly believed. Because believing is more than accepting the fact. Intellectually believing is putting your life in the hands of the one to whom you say you believe. That's faith. Some years ago, I was listening to a talk given by the late pastor and author, Dr. Adrian Rogers. Some of you may remember his ministry, Love Worth Finding. And and in his teaching, he gave four components of faith, and they have stuck with me over the years, and I just want to briefly share them with you because I think faith often is misunderstood, okay? Very quickly, a lot of this is a reminder, a refresher for, for many of you. Number one, faith has an object, and the object of our faith is God. Jesus Christ came to establish himself as the object of our faith. We put our faith and trust in him. Now, the reason this is so important is because so many people think faith is just positive thinking. If I believe it, and I believe it, and I believe it, it will be. No, no, no. That's just positive thinking. And I like positive people, but that's not faith, because you can put your faith in something weak, like thin ice. And if you walk on it, no matter how positive you are, you're going down. Because your faith is only as good as the object in which you place it in. Here's the point. Because we put our faith in him, that's what gives us the confidence and the assurance of things hoped for. That is the definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1, 1, by the way. And the things hoped for are God's good promises coming to pass in our lives. Let me say it this way. When God promises you something, it's as good as done. Why? Because God cannot lie, Hebrews 6.18. And because there is so much evidence of God's fulfilled promises, not only in history, but in the lives of faithful followers of his. So, faith has an object. The object of our faith is God, okay? Now, if God is the object of our faith and he is a person, Father, Son, and Spirit, what's our part? Every one of these components, we play a part. Our part is to seek him and to know him. It's all about the relationship. We seek and know him through prayer and through reading his word. Dr. Harry Blackaby in his book, Experiencing God said, God is a person to be loved, not an an idea to be accepted. It's all about the relationship, okay? So God is the object of our faith. We are to seek and know him. Number two, quickly, faith has an origin. The origin of faith is the word of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, John chapter one. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And very simply, what is our part? To listen to it, to listen to it. Number three, faith has an objective. And the objective of faith is not to do your will. It's not to do my will. It is to do the very will of God. What's our part? Submit to it. 
As Jesus was going to the cross, he said, not my will, but your will, Father. And finally, number four, faith has an operation and the operation of faith is to do the work of God. Jesus said in John 5, 17, my father is always working and so am I. And what is he working to do? Redeem a lost and hurting world. And he invites you and he invites me to participate in his work. And what is our part? Obedience. Obedience. You see, faith is not just saying, I believe, I believe, I believe. Faith seeks him. Faith knows him. Faith listens. Faith submits. Faith obeys. As one theologian put it, Faith is the currency of exchange in the kingdom of God. Meaning all the good things God has for you and for me only come to us by faith. And that's why when Jesus walked this earth in his earthly ministry, he highlighted repeatedly the importance of faith. And he would say things like this, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Your faith is great. Let it be done according to your faith. You see, faith is not a nice to have. Faith is a necessity. Because without it, we cannot please God, Hebrews eleven six, And without it, we will never experience God and his good promises. Okay? Now let's get back to the story. And what we see is only two of the 12 having faith like that, Caleb and Joshua. And what I wanna do as we land, what I wanna do is lift out a few questions. And I believe this is where the teaching is for us today. Number one, the first question I want us to look at is why was only two of the 12, why were they the only ones with faith? It's not because they experienced different circumstances. They saw the same land, the same people, the same cities, and yet two totally different responses. And I want you to stop and think for a moment what all of the Israelites witnessed when God was in their midst. Okay, think about this. In Egypt, while they're in bondage, the 10 plagues, and God protected them from each of those. They also experienced the incredible miracle of the parting of the Red Sea as they walked on dry land, escaping Egyptian bondage. And by the way, that was only about two years prior to this moment when he's calling them to the promised land, fresh in their minds. And then they witness the entire Egyptian army dead. They're, they're annihilated when, when the parting Red Sea collapses on them. And then they witness food falling from the sky for their survival when they're in the, the desert. And, the, and then they see God guiding them by cloud during the day and by fire at night. Hello? Oh my. No one in the history of the world, maybe second only to the disciples that walked with Jesus, had ever experienced the power and the presence and the protection and the provision 
of God quite like they did. And yet, most of them did not believe. How in the world is that possible? Well, the reason is quite simple. The reason is because they did not, here's the key word, stay focused on God and his goodness. They were only focused on themselves and the immediate circumstances in front of them that they completely missed God. And we know that because of how they responded in chapter 14. When they were full of fear, it's amazing. Not once do, do they appeal to God for wisdom. Not once do they go to him in prayer. I mean, maybe I would have thought they would have said something like this. God, you have been so good to us. And I know you have made this wonderful promise of this wonderful land, but we took a look in that land and we're scared. Can you help us overcome our fear? Can you give us reassurance that this is the next step we're to take something? But they didn't do any of that. They never appealed to God for help. The only time they appealed to him was to criticize him. Look at chapter 14, verse two. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land? only to let us fall by the sword. He brings us here only to let us die. Now, when you stop and think about it, they're partially right. Not that he's bringing them, bringing them there to die a physical death, but he is requiring them to die to their self-centered ways. In fact, if you or I want to go to the next level of faith, we're gonna to have to lose a bit of ourselves because the faith walk requires that. That's why Jesus would often say in the gospels, the one who loses their life for the sake of the gospel, that's losing your self-centered ways, it's the one who finds life. But because the Israelites were so completely absorbed with themselves and the circumstances in front of them, they missed God. The giants are going to kill us. Now, the one thing that can stand in the way of God's good promise for you, I don't want this to sound too harsh, have grace, is you. And the one thing that stands in the way of God's good promises for me is me. Yes, there is an enemy, the devil who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And he wants you and I wandering so far from our good shepherd. But we do stand in the way of God's good promises because at times when we may even cooperate with the enemy and we may ex respond exactly the way the Israelites did. Yeah, I know the land is good, but I know your promises are good, but I'm too scared to submit my life to you, God. Or I know your promises are so good, I don't have the time or resources to do what you are calling me to do. 
or I know your promises are so good, God, but you don't know my past, the places I have been, the things I have done, the regret that burdens me, I'm not worthy for your grace. I know your promises are good, but I'm not capable. The ask is too much. The task is too big. The giants are too large. And we're left asking, how am I gonna be able to overcome that? How am I gonna be able to do that? And we can miss the only one that can help us overcome and enable us to do what we can't do and only he can do. But you gotta stay focused. We gotta stay focused on him. That's why the writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 12 too, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of But the Israelites, they did not stay focused on him. Question number two, why not? Considering all that they saw with their own eyes. And the reason is because faith is more than seeing. It is more than a matter of the mind. For you can see and hear the truth and not believe. It happens all all the time. The apostle John in the book of John tells us that when Jesus was performing incredible miracles in front of a lot of people, he said most of those people who witnessed what he did did not believe in him because faith is not just seeing. In fact, faith is believing when you can't see and when you don't know the outcome. It's more than a matter of the mind. Faith is a matter of the heart. And that's why the apostle Paul in Romans 10, 10, put it this way, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. What does that mean? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us an unbelieving heart is one that turns away from God. Therefore, a believing heart is one that is committed to God. It is not one that only turns because I believe the Israelites had times where they turned to God. Like when they were walking through the parted Red Sea, they were looking to God, believe me. The problem is they forgot about him shortly thereafter. It's not just turning, it's staying connected to God. And that's what Jesus says in John 15, five. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, connectivity, intimate relationship, then you bear much fruit. Apart from me, nothing of eternal significance will flow out of our lives. So believing heart is one that is committed and connected to God. It is one, regardless of circumstances, that seeks him and knows him and listens to him and submits to him and obeys him. And Caleb and Joshua had a heart of belief. And we know that 
not only because of how they responded in that final plea when the Israelites were full of fear and they tried to rally them and they said, if the Lord is pleased with us, we can do it. Just do not rebel against the Lord for with the Lord, we have nothing to be afraid of. But even more than that, we know they had a heart of belief because God said so. You see, when the Israelites were full of fear and that fear began to turn to anger and they were thinking of stoning Caleb and Joshua to death. In fact, they started talking negatively about Moses, the chosen leader of God. God had enough and his presence came down. And that's when he judged the Israelites and gave them what they wanted. And they wandered for 40 years in that wilderness. But then he said these words, look at it with me, about Caleb. Chapter 14, verse 24. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me, what's that next word? Wholeheartedly. I will bring him, and then in verse 30, a little bit later in the chapter, he pulls Joshua into this. I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. And that's exactly what happened because they were men of faith. As I close, the last question, why were they committed? And the rest were not. The reason they were committed as number one, they knew that God is good. And they knew God's ways were better in the end than their ways. They knew God's commands were only for their good, not for their harm, and they ran to God. Do you realize how God is so good to you and to me? His grace, there's nothing like it in Christ. His love is unconditional in Christ. His goodness and kindness ought to make us want to run to him. In fact, Paul says in Romans 2, 4, it is the kindness, it is the goodness, it is the love of God that leads to repentance, a turning from me and a turning to God. Number two, they also knew not only that God is so good, but God is faithful. And when God says so, it is so. And they experienced God's faithfulness in their lives. But here's the catch. Always remember this. God's faithfulness is always on the other side of our faith walk. And because they walked by faith, they experienced his faithfulness. And the more we walk by faith, the bigger our faith muscles get. And it's because they knew God is good and God is faithful. That's what gave them the courage and the readiness to obey regardless of the circumstances. And that's what enabled Caleb to boldly interrupt the fear talk in verse 30, chapter 13, when he said, let's take possession of the promise for we in him can certainly do it. What about you? What about me? How will we respond to his promises? Because God is 
a promise maker, and he's also a promise keeper. All he is asking you and I to do is trust him, have faith in him, seek him, know him, listen to him, submit to him, obey him, faith. It's the only way we experience more of God in our lives, his experiencing of God. And it's more, and it's the way that we experience more of his promises in our lives for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us. And I don't know where everyone is in their journey to you, Father, but my prayer is that all of us would get to know you more intimately in and through the cross of Jesus, that we would understand just how good you are and that you want a deep, intimate relationship with every one of us through the cross of Christ, and then you will begin to change us, and then we will begin to experience more of you, and then we will begin to experience more of the promises and the blessings attached to those promises so that we can then become more of your hands and feet in a world that is in desperate need to know you. Father, may you take this body of believers known as Grace Fellowship and do a work in our hearts, transform us from the inside out so that we can be a light in a dark world that is in desperate need to know you. We thank you for all that you do in and through a faithful body of believers. And we praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.